All right, I love that. That's awesome. We're clapping. That's cool. Um, hey, so how many of you guys are super excited that, uh, you know, we're kind of entering into the, the tax season? I mean, how many of you guys, like, get super excited? You know, it's the new year. Man, I can't wait until I get my W-2, my 1099. I just can't wait. Can't wait to be able to go through that whole process and everything like that. Yeah, said nobody, right? Except for maybe the CPA or something like that. But, you know, one of the things about taxes, taxes I don't think have ever really been that popular, right? Mark Twain once said this about taxes. He said, um, you know, he, he said a fine is a tax for doing something wrong. A tax is a fine for doing something right, right? Albert Einstein once said that, um, you know, as he's filling out his taxes, he said, this is too difficult for a mathematician. It takes a philosopher. And Will Rogers um, once said this about uh, taxes. He said, it is a good thing that we do not get as much government as we pay for, right? And I love it. He also, he he has some good ones actually about taxes. He said, you know, the taxpayers are sending congressmen on expensive trips abroad. It might be worth it, except they keep coming back. You know, now taxes are, you know, they're a difficult thing for us. We don't really like them and things like that. But 2000 years ago, um, taxes were really, really horrible. They They were really you know, for, for the taxpayer, the common person, um, they were very much, they felt a lot of sense of injustice, unfairness to it. Um, back in the days, during the days of Jesus, the, the Roman Empire, they would have this thing called tax farming. It's not like farming, like, you know, like you go out and you farm vegetables or whatever. It's like you farm out, you know, it's like you farm out the task. And so what the Romans used to do is they would farm out the task of taxing people, gathering the taxes. It's kind of, this is kind of the way it worked, okay? So let's say you're, let's, for instance, I, I believe that the state of Florida brings in about a billion dollars a year in toll taxes. It would be kind of something like this. This is kind of how it worked in the Roman world. It would be like the government of Florida saying, okay, you know what? We want um, a billion dollars this year of, of revenue to come through our toll taxes. Let's say you are a very wealthy individual. You have tons of money. And so you go to the, the state of Florida and um, you and maybe somebody else and you start bidding. You bid on who gets to collect um, the taxes. All right. But here's the thing. What you do is you start off with, if you get the bid, you have to write out a billion dollar check right then and there to the state of Florida, which means if you get the bid, you need to make more than a billion dollars in tolls. So what do you do? You go out and you, you know, charge people to the point where you would bring in $1.2 billion and you would profit $200 million. All right. So that's kind of how it worked in the, in the ancient times. The Romans didn't want to really deal with it. They, you know, it was great for them because it was less bureaucracy. Somebody would come and kind of privatize it and say, okay, you know what? Um, if you want this amount of money, um, I bid, you know, I bid that amount and then I'll write you a check. So they get their money up front and then it would be on me to go out and get that money to recoup my cost of the check that I just wrote to them. Now, now that's kind of, you know, so they want So the Romans want like a billion dollars. You raise $1.2 billion for yourself, and you're like sitting there going, this is horrible. Now, let's put it a different way. Think about it this way. Because back in the old days, during the Roman times, who were the people that were collecting taxes? They were a bunch of, they were fellow Jews. So it would be somebody who's part of the same nationality, same clan. Remember, uh, Israel comes from one person with Abraham, and so you have this, this 
family kind of group. Um, and it would be a Jew that would go to a Roman and, and they would drum up the business. And then as a Jew, I would go to you and, and I would make you pay me more than what the Romans want because I want to make a profit off of that. The bad thing about that, though, is as, as a Jew, what am I doing? I'm taking your money, basically. I'm profiting from it. But I'm also giving it to the Romans. Who are the Romans? They're the ones who are oppressing you, right? Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Really appreciate that. So wait a minute. I thought, Tyler, you're like, supposed to be like one of us. So you're coming to my house. You're, you're making sure that I get my taxes and, and you, I'm going to make you pay what I tell you to pay me because then I have the whole government behind me to do that. So then you give me money and here we are. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters and all that. And then I take your money. I profit a little bit and I give it to a foreign oppressor who continues to oppress you using that money. All right. That's why in the early church during the days of Jesus, uh, they really hated the tax collector. I mean, this was not just, you know, we all hate taxes, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this was somebody who was profiting that was taking money from me. They were profiting from that and giving it to an oppressive government that keeps us oppressed. And that's why they would use terms like, you know, with tax collector, prostitute, Samaritan, sinner. Um, that's why if you were a tax collector, you can make some really good money. But in making a lot of really good money, guess what? You really don't have a lot of good friends. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at another person that Jesus saw. Somebody that was just kind of a stranger that he met on the way, but somebody that he saw intimately. Somebody that culture would have just looked at him and said, he's a bum. Nobody should pay attention to this guy. This guy, he's a horrible person, you know. And so I want you to kind of think about that as we look at the kind of people and the way that Jesus interacts with certain people. But before we get there, here's kind of just kind of the main point here. Jesus sees people that we often don't, okay? We, Jesus sees people even when others won't. Like there are certain people that we just think, you know what, they're bad, they're awful, they do mean things, they do dumb things, and so we shun them, we turn our backs from them, and we ignore them, and we just kind of, hopefully, that you know, just kind of throw them out as outcasts. And there's, there's real feelings towards that, because these are people who may have hurt us as well, and, and have taken advantage of us and things like that. So that's why sometimes it's really hard to kind of wrestle through some of these things, the way that, you know, that when we think about how Jesus sees people. But hopefully this will give us a little bit of clarity about how do we process through seeing people that other people won't and that really naturally, I really don't feel like I really want to, all right? So this whole scene can be found in um, Luke's writing of Jesus's life. It's found in Luke chapter 19. So you can open up your Bible there. This, it'll all here be on the screen right here. And we're gonna begin in verse one. So verse one says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. Now this is important. Um, because at this, you know, at this moment in Jesus's life, he's going to go through Jericho. Jericho is about 18 miles, what, northeast, east of Jerusalem, near um, kind of right on the north side of the Dead Sea. There's a little river that goes up to north, which is the Jordan. So it's kind of right down there. Jerusalem's over here, a little bit to the west of it. And he's making his way through it. Why is he going through Jericho? He's on his way to Jerusalem, all right? So what is he doing going to Jerusalem? 
He's going to die, all right? And so this is important for us to understand because, um, because Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's not oblivious or blinded to the fact that he's going to die in about a week or so, all right? And this, is, this, is, so this really kind of struck me just kind of thinking about this. It's like I was thinking about, you know, what if I had cancer? What if I found out I had cancer? I think if I found out that I had cancer, I'd probably be thinking more about me and my cancer than I would think about noticing other people, you know? And so it's just really interesting to me to see how Jesus continues to notice other people, even when he knows what's about to happen to him. And it says a lot to, one, his understanding of his, how much the Father loves him and how much he trusts the Father and how much he knows that the Father's plan will happen in reality, that he will die and he will be raised again. And so even understanding those things, you can see a person who is completely, you know, dialed in and sees people right where they're at. So he's, he's going through Jericho. He's making his way through town. And so verse 2 goes on. There was a man named Zacchaeus. All right, y'all know, any of you, how many of you guys grew up going to Sunday school? And remember the little song, Zacchaeus, he's a wee little man, wee little man was he? I gotta tell you what, I don't know about you, but I wonder, you know, I know all, we're all gonna be sanctified and we're gonna be totally different people and stuff like that, but maybe if we weren't, I always wondered if like Zacchaeus would be like, you know, like we're like in, in heaven and you meet Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hey, you're the wee little man. I know I've been hearing that forever, you know? <laughs> I really feel bad for that guy. Anyways, uh, Zacchaeus was, there was a guy there whose name was Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. So he was one of these guys that would go to um, and bid to the Romans to go and collect the taxes. And so he would go, and, and he's a chief collector. So what that meant was, was he would bid different regions. So he would tackle different areas that he could go and just tax the people and, and profit big time. Uh, which is the reason, you know, why he was really, really rich. So he was a really rich guy. And Jericho um, is a perfect place for him to have his really fancy villa because it's kind of a trade route and all that stuff. And so, um, so we see this guy and he's there. He lives in Jericho. And, um, and so in the very next verse, in verse 3, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. There's a couple of things first and foremost. One is, is that he has this desire to see Jesus. Um, you know, I think at first glance when we look at that is maybe he, he has a desire to see Jesus because Jesus is the miracle worker. Everybody's talking about Jesus and he just wanted to be able to get a look at him. But I think there's something more to it than that. Um, and I don't know, you know, there, you, what you'll see is a very wealthy person um, who is basically shunned because there's a crowd there. And um, no one's going to let him in to be able to see. I don't, you know, and there's this picture that everybody has their back towards Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is kind of isolated. He's on his, on his own behind everybody. Everybody has their back towards him. And, but at the same time, there's something inside of him that really, really wants to see Jesus. Even to the point that we're going to see here that may be a little bit humiliating for him, you know, because it goes on here in the next verse, in verse 4, uh, he ran to climb a sycamore fig tree beside the road. You know, kind of not very dignified for a very wealthy uh, individual who can't see, and so he goes and he shuffles up a little tree for, um, to be able to see Jesus. But he really wants to see 
Jesus. He really, there's, there, there must be something inside of him. We don't really know exactly what it is, but there's something that he really wants to see him very much. And so he climbs this fig tree by the side of the road, and Jesus was going to pass that way. And then in the next verse here in verse 5, when Jesus came by, what did he do? He saw Zacchaeus. Now think about it. He's about to die. Not only is he about to die, but he's going to be rejected. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be humiliated. His closest people next to him are going to run away from him. And there's all these people here. And in that moment, it's like all of that stuff right there. He looks up and he sees this man who's in this tree, eagerly looking at him. And then what does Jesus do? He calls him by his name. In the ancient world, and it still is, you know, uh, uh, was it Dale Carnegie's book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People or whatever? Uh, our names are really important to us. There's something about it when somebody addresses us by our name. There's a, there's a sense of familiarity there. And I, and I love the fact that here you see Luke puts in his writing this, 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 this piece about this whole scene about Jesus not just looking at him and, and seeing this man, but he calls him by his name. Now, you can sit there and you get, well, you know what, that's really cool because he's Jesus, man. He, can, he knows everybody's name and how kind of, you know, wild is that, that he can see somebody and point them out and say their name. And he can, which makes him really unique. But there's something really, really neat about this unique individual named Jesus and the fact that he sees this man individually, sees this man deeply, sees this man into his heart. And then he says, you know, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today, you know. And uh, I was telling the guys earlier when we were doing a mic check, it kind of hit me kind of funny. It's like, oh, that's so awesome. You know, it's, it, it, you know, it's telling them like, I want to be more biblical. want to be more like, you know, Jesus in my own life. And so, you know, hey, Sean, I'm going to come over to your house tonight and have dinner with you. All right. You know, I love that. I love the fact that Jesus just kind of says, hey, Zacchaeus. I'm coming over, man. I'm coming over to have dinner at your, your house, right? Um, he said, quick, come down. I wouldn't be a guest in your house. And remember, though, one of the things that this video that, that Nate did at the beginning, the bumper, is we have. Those of us who are, you know, been around for a little bit longer, um, we probably remember more than most people what it was like at a time when people just ran the streets and kids ran the streets and you knock on the door and you were excited because that probably meant a friend or it meant a neighbor or something like that. And, and um, back in really a long time ago, there was, there, you know, there was a lot more of this hospitality and how important hospitality was. And it was very important back in the time of Jesus as well. So for the fact that Jesus was saying, I want to come over to your house, it was a sign of, of intimacy and a sign of friendship um, as well. Because remember, nobody wants to go to, to uh, Zacchaeus' house. Maybe the people that, you know, uh, that work for him, that profit off of the tax base as well, or, or people who, you know, somehow benefit from his wealthy friendship. But most of the people don't really want to have anything to do with a guy who's, who's, who's collecting and taking money from you and using it to, to build that nice villa for himself and then to pay for those guards who are, who are pressing us if we don't want to do what the Romans tell us to do. Nobody wanted to do that. But here you have Jesus who sees into the heart of a human being. 
and recognizing that there's something that's going on in that heart of that person that is, that is missing. That Jesus sees that maybe the rest of the people don't see. They just see the outward actions of this guy and what this guy has done rather than Jesus seeing the true heart of this person, the longing, the need, you know, in his heart. And so in verse 6, goes on and says, Zacchaeus, what did he do? He quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. He was so excited, you know. I mean, this is kind of neat, you know, and, and think about it is that, you know, he is feeling the love of Christ. Now, remember what we talked about, you know, last week is that, you know, this quote from um, Robert Keegan, who said that uh, what, the, what the eye see deeply, remember that? The heart loves more tenderly, you know? And so you have this, and, and how that changes us. And you see that Jesus sees Zacchaeus deeply, beyond the category of tax collector, beyond the, the junk that he's doing as a tax collector. And he sees something in his heart that makes Christ, his heart tender towards Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is trying to fill something in his heart through what he's doing as a tax collector. And in that moment, though, you see that Zacchaeus experiences the tender love of Jesus. And so he has great excitement, his great joy. So he goes over. So verse 7, though, um, here's the deal. The people are like, what? Wait a minute. You're going over, Jesus is going over to eat with that guy. In our culture, a lot of times we tend to think that, well, if Jesus is going to have dinner with that guy, then he must automatically um, subscribe to his behavior, to the way that he lives his life and his politics, right? Usually that's what we do. Usually if there's any kind of association with one person to another, then they're completely 100% associated with that person. It's not the case with Jesus. You know, Jesus associates himself really with only one person. You know who that is? His heavenly father, 100%. But he loves Zacchaeus. And he sees Zacchaeus tenderly about what Zacchaeus truly desires in his heart. That Zacchaeus may not even really know it, but maybe he's starting to get a glimpse of it now as he's experiencing the love and the grace of Jesus Christ even in his own life. But the people are mad. They're going, wait a minute. If he's a rabbi, if he's a holy, righteous man, why is a holy, righteous man going to have dinner at a completely unrighteous person, right? Now, if you were here last week, we can see that this is kind of Jesus's MO. Uh, Last week, he had no problem seeing deeply and interacting with a Samaritan woman who made some poor life choices. Now, they were life choices that she made because I believe that she thought that she would find satisfaction in her life by which Jesus addresses the thing that's in her heart to give her the thing that would truly satisfy her, which is his love. And I believe here that you're seeing with Jesus and Zacchaeus kind of the same thing. This is a tax collector who is looking towards wealth in order to satisfy his heart where Jesus came to give this man really what his heart really needed was to know that he was loved. But the people are displeased. He's gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner. They grumble. How can he do that? 
I thought he was a righteous person. I thought he was a rabbi. Why is he doing that? Holy people don't do that. Holy people stay away from those kind of people, you know? So there's, they don't really quite understand. And that's kind of one of the things that we talk about as we kind of walk through this, this series. One of the faultiness of humanity is that we don't see people deeply. We tend to see people on the outward. We put those categories, we put assumptions, um, you know, and, and, and not really see what's truly going on inside of each other's hearts. You know, what's really going on and why they do what they're doing or why they're not doing what they should be doing or, or what's really going on inside of their hearts. What is the, truly the longing of it? And as Christ followers, to help people to understand what that true longing is. And that true longing is to be loved by God. By which in this world we get confused and think that this hole in our heart can be filled by the things of this world. But Jesus knows better. He sees something in Zacchaeus that the rest of the people won't see because they're too busy looking at his behavior or, or the things that he does. And so in verse 8, it goes on and it says this, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said this to Jesus. He said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Four times as much, that's just kind of the, the, uh, the law. The law basically says if you cheat somebody, if you break the law, you have to restore it uh, by stealing, you have to restore it by four times over. So he says, man, you know what? I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And I think what we see here in this picture with Zacchaeus is, he, is a point in his life that he recognizes. And I'm sure he probably, maybe this is kind of the rumbling under his, you know, his life, that probably he's had that nice villa for a long time. He's had his money for the long time. He's kind of gone through having nice stuff, but at the same time, not feeling satisfied, not feeling uh, happy, and at the same time, having poor relationships. Rich in pocket, poor in relationships. And for the first time in his life, it looks like that he was finally somebody that would just love him for who he was. Did Jesus ask Zacchaeus for any money? No. He didn't want Zacchaeus' money. He wasn't doing this to get something from him, another religious leader that might get something from him. But what he wanted to do was to give something to Zacchaeus that he was lacking. Paul once said that, you know, Jesus, talking about Jesus, that he, that he who was rich became poor in order to what? To make us rich. Rich in what way? Rich in the way that our hearts really long and desire, which is relationships. Being around people who see us and know us, good stuff, the bad stuff, and still love us and are still with us and are there with us. And ultimately, the longing of the heart to be filled by the love of the one who made us and created us in order to have that relationship with him. So I think this is the first time that, you know, he can release his money and recognize that, you know what, I can release this, I can have less of this, but yet my heart can still be full because of, I found what would really satisfy my heart. And that is to be seen and to be loved the way that Jesus did uh, for him. And so in the verse, ne next verse here, in verse 10, 
Jesus responded and he said, you know what? Salvation has come to this home today. Now, this is important to understand, especially in our American culture, because we kind of come out of this revivalistic culture, which is really good. And there's, there's, you know, there's so many wonderful things about revivals. Revivals were like, you know, hey, you're, you're going to hell uh, because you're separated from God. But Jesus Christ came to give his life for you. And if you accept that, that gift of eternal life, you have eternal life in him and you will be saved. And so we, and, and there's, there's truth to that. And so we go, well, you know what? I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven forever. And so, yeah, I accept that gift and rah, rah, rah. But that's missing the totality of salvation. Salvation isn't just not going to heaven or going to hell. Salvation is really the saving of, 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 of what goes on in our hearts. You know? It's, it's the saving from every single day that my heart wants to turn left or my heart wants to turn right or I want to be loved by something or have something in this world to, to satisfy my heart. Well, really what he's talking about is the salvation really is we are really saved is when we are at a place in our life by which we are just at a complete and utter joy of being loved by Jesus Christ, right? It's what it means in the totality of God doing his work in our lives Salvation has come to this home because he has been saved, not just for the penalty of his sins, but he has been saved from trying to always look towards money to make him satisfied. He's been saved from that because now he's found true love and he's found true joy in his relationship with Jesus Christ. The totality of salvation for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And a true son of Abraham is, is kind of uh, Jewish uh, lingo for this guy put his faith in the Lord. That he is saved by his faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting that Jesus' love is, is what he needs, is what he's looking for. And ultimately, as one week after this, his sacrifice and his resurrection for the forgiveness of his sins forever. Now, this is a key because in this very next sentence, Jesus can sum up the way that he looks at humanity. Now, like I said, when we go through this world, and it's just kind of the way that we are, we just, the way that we want to, you know, try to make sense of things, we quickly assess people based on categories, assumptions, um, you know, expectations, first impressions. But it's interesting when I think about Jesus, when Jesus came into this world, he really only had one thing that he looked at when he looked at the world. He didn't look at how much money you made because right before this, if you go and you read Luke chapter 18, as he's coming into Jericho, guess what? He he bumps into a blind beggar, a man who is incredibly poor, who wants to see. And Jesus sees this blind beggar and sees him deeply and, and heals him so this blind man can now see Jesus. Okay? So, so that doesn't have to do with money, poor. Now we get this rich guy. Jesus really only saw really one thing. In this next sentence, he says it. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. It's all he sees. And he looks out, just sees a bunch of lost people. And we are. 
without Christ, we're just lost. You know, he, he's not thinking in categorical terms of Samaritan, tax collector, beggar, politician, business person. He just sees humanity trying to go blindly through this world apart from him. That's all he sees. And he sees piercing into their hearts of this longing that's in all of our hearts in order to fill it with something that sometimes we don't even really know what it is. And so we think it what it is. We think it's popularity. We think it's having titles. We think it's pleasure. We think it's, you know, um, possessions. We think about it, it's these things. And so we, we, we try to keep filling it. But just like we talked about last week, you know, in Jeremiah, where he talked about how we're just broken cisterns, where we fill our lives with these things, and then they just go right through. And God offered a blind man, a Samaritan woman, a tax collector, and a, a slave, a servant, a foreign servant, the longing of what they all really longed for, that they were looking for in relationships and money and, and whatever. And that is the love that comes from the creator who sees them deeply. Your salvation in so many ways that that brings about flourishment in your life and my life is to sit and just think through the reality of how deeply God sees each and every single one of us. He doesn't see us as categories. He just sees us. And he sees in his tender mercy a people that is longing to be filled with being loved. And he loves us. He loves you. It is his love that will fill your heart. It's not the money. It's not if I can just get in that relationship, if I can have this person do this thing and for me and then I'll be happy and all of these things. Contentment all throughout Scripture has always found itself at the core of just sometimes just sitting there and allowing God to love you. No, no, you know, hey, God, I know you love me, but it's like, no, 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 stop that. I just love you. Just sit in my love. God, how can you love me? I'm a tax collector, but I'm this. No, 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 no. I love you. I've come to free you from the need of whatever you have in your heart. And Zacchaeus goes, you're right. I'm going to give half my money to the poor. I'm going to give back four times to anybody who's, who, you know, who I've cheated or whatever. I don't need that stuff anymore because I've found what I've been looking for, that relationship with Jesus Christ. Now with that, though, is our challenge Especially, it's one of the reasons, you know, think about this message. This is one of our challenges when it comes to us as Christ followers. Because we are called to be people who are to see others without categories, but to see others the way that God sees them. And it's hard. We live in a culture full, full of tribalisms. We're heading into election season. Man, if there's ever two big, huge tribes... Each one wants to turn their back against each other. And we are called to live a life that lives above all of that stuff. A life by which we live as citizens of heaven to see all of humanity the way that God sees them. 
and to love people and to pray for them that they would experience the love that we've experienced through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus sees people even when others won't. And so should we. So should we. Let's break those, those categories. Break those assumptions. Listen to people. See them deeply the way that God sees them. To listen to their hearts. Because I believe, just even in my own experience, one time I had a wonderful conversation with a Muslim on, the, on a plane one time. There was another time where I had a conversation with one person who used to be, uh, for all better purposes, he was a pimp. And made a lot of money off of that and things like that. And just, you know what, the more I listened, the more I talked to them, guess what? I figured, wow, we're all the same. Every single one of them wants to be loved. Every single one of us were, are looking for things that we think are going to give us what we love. You know, that, that kind of love or that kind of fullness. Only to find out that really only Jesus Christ can fill our hearts. He's the only one who can. Because he's the only one in this world that can see us for every little bit of piece of us. Perfectly, beautifully, and still say to us, I love you. I want to free you from these things. I want you to experience the freedom of my love for you. We're going to have a spot of time here just to respond to this. And for some of you, you may just want to just sit there and pray and say, God, do you really love me this much? And allow him to speak to you and say, yes, I do. God, help me. Maybe it's confession. God, help me. I categorize people. There are people in my life that I, if I see them the way that they look, or their party affiliation or what they do, I treat them differently than the way that you would treat them. Help me to work through those things, Lord, so that I can go and love the way that you have loved me and changed my life. Because let me tell you, Hagar's life was changed. The Samaritan woman's life was changed. The people in the Samaritan's village was changed. Zacchaeus' life was changed. His tax collector's you know, friends' lives were changed. It changes people's lives. And so the more that we allow God to form our hearts the way that forms him, the more we can see people the way that he sees them, the way we can love them. There can be opportunities here to, to come and, and to pray with some of our prayer leaders here. They're wonderful for you to come and pray for. It can be with anything that may be on your heart. God loves it when we get together and we, we pray to him. It may be also one of those things where you've been your whole life, been trying to find, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And God's calling you home. And they would love to, to walk that out in a new relationship with a God who sees you and loves you and pray for you in that. We have our communion on the sides over here. We've changed it up a little bit. I know it's been a little bit confusing, so hopefully this might be a little bit easier for you. But still, this is a wonderful time to remember that God loves you so much that he came into this world that even though he sees everything about you, he's willing to sacrifice his life for you and to give his life for you as well. What are y'all laughing at? Look at that. You know what? Thank you, Lord. You know what? I just want to say the Lord just thinks I'm a star. You know? I just appreciate that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and there's our offering as well. Let's pray and let's move on. All right, Father.
Hey, God, I thank you so much that um, I love laughter and joy and love and, and you seeing us for who we are and accepting us and, and helping us to grow and freeing us from stuff that l- keeps us down and everything, Lord. I thank you so much for that. I thank you so much for the sacrificial gift of your son, Jesus Christ. To see us in our depravity and our sin, our selfishness and our junk, and not to stomp on us and get mad at us and kick us to the side, but come into our world and sacrifice your life for the forgiveness of our sins, to take on our punishment for us because you love us that much and you desire that much to free us from all of that junk as well. I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to pray and to talk to you about these things as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would just take advantage of all of those things as we spend this time just allowing you to speak to our hearts. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.